This episode of Serverless Chats is sponsored by Amazon Web Services. This week, I chat with Jared Short about the things I wish I knew before migrating to the cloud. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 49. I'm Jeremy Daly, and this is Serverless Chats. Today, I'm chatting with Jared Short. Hey, Jared, thanks for joining me. Hey, pleasure to be here. Thanks. So you are a senior cloud engineer and developer accelerator at Trek 10 Inc. So why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about your background and what you do at Trek 10 Inc.? Sure. So uh, my background, I think, starts similar to to a lot of people uh, where I dabbled in the basement on the old Apple II. I learned how to program actually from a book from the library on that uh, Apple II. And then uh, throughout college and, and well, high school and college, uh, kept kept keeping up with technology and building things and, and, and exploring and learning. And eventually that led me to kind of the cloud uh, back in 2014 or so. Um, I was big into Docker in the early days in the cloud and eventually found serverless uh, while I was at Trek 10. So Trek 10 is, of course, uh, um, an AWS consulting partner. And as part of that, I get to help uh, companies design and build uh, serverless and cloud native systems um, with different kind of verticals all over the world, uh, SaaS companies, enterprise companies, all of that kind of stuff. Um, so that's... That's where I'm at today, um, and I'm mostly focused on helping people um, learn and understand the cloud through our developer acceleration program. So taking all of those things that I've learned uh, while helping people build things and now um, helping people just learn what all they need to learn uh, to build successfully in the cloud. Awesome. All right. Well, so I've been following you for a very long time. I mean, you and I have known each other now for a while, uh, yeah. met up at a few conferences and so forth. And uh, you always do great stuff. So the love the Trek 10 blog, love the stuff that you've been working on. You've done a lot of stuff I know Thank with you. Forest Brazil and some other things yes. that um, have been very popular. There's a whole bunch of great stuff out there by you. So definitely search for Jared Short Serverless and, and go, check out, um, go check out your stuff. Um, but I saw an article from you a couple of weeks ago um, that was the three big things I wish I knew before I started working with AWS or something yeah. like that. And um, that just struck a chord with me because as I was reading through these things, I was like, oh man, this was the article I wish I had when I started working with the cloud way back in 2009. And since then, it, it's like, exploded a thousand times over. So yep. um, this is a great article and I'm going to put the link in the show notes because I do want people to go read it. But I think it'd be awesome to just go through and talk about this article and kind of hit on some of these points. The article is very in-depth. It goes deep into some of these things, but um, this is something that really warrants a conversation. Um, so the first point that you made, you know, the first big learning or the thing that you wanted to, uh, uh, that you wish you had known was this idea that AWS is just this massive ecosystem and it's basically pretty much impossible to understand all of it. Right. Yeah, it's a... Uh... It's a massive ecosystem that shows no signs of slowing down. It's, right. it's pretty similar to just the, the you know, ever expanding edge of the universe. It just keeps growing <laughs> and, and consuming. And 
It's like S3 was the big bang and then it just kept <laughs> going from from that point. Right, right. So you you uh you point out a couple of things though about this that I, I thought was, you know, sort of really interesting, where it's like there are all of these different services. And you had said like you could explain what most of these services do, like at a high level, like what is mm-hmm. Amazon Sumerian or AWS Sumerian, or who even knows the names of some of these things. You can explain that at a high level, but then understanding the nuances and the limits and that side of stuff, that's just a, that's like a graduate level course in, in and of itself. Yep. Yeah, right. Like, and, and in fact, the fact that I can't even tell you how they name Amazon versus AWS in front of something tells you a little bit of something, right? I, I actually can't tell. I think it's, I would guess it's Amazon Sumerian. I have no idea. Uh, and you know, the fact that I can tell you a, a little bit about each service, I can tell you at a high level, what it does is I think you have to know that in many situations, if you're an architect or someone building stuff on AWS, cause you need to know at least which tools I need to go read the docs on to understand if I need to use it mm-hmm. or it could be useful in my particular scenario. Uh, what I can't do with, for instance, um, SageMaker, I can tell you it's, you know, their machine learning product and things like that. I couldn't tell you what models are pre-existing in SageMaker. I can't tell you what limits might apply to SageMaker endpoints that I've deployed, things like that. If I were to need to build a machine learning uh, product or have some feature for that, I know I could go look at that and then I would have to learn those specifics. But And I think that applies to the vast majority of services that exist in AWS. You can certainly know what they do. You might not know how or why you should use them, but knowing the what for the core services is at least, you know, I think a starting point. Right. So one of the things you mentioned too is that, um, you know, again, reading the docs, right? This is something that yes. is you've publicized on Twitter. And I think it's a brilliant idea. And if only we all had the time to do this, where you take uh, a, a different service and you read through all the documentation once a week, which is, I, I probably should be doing this too. Um, <laughs> but the um, But this idea of being able to read the docs and get a really good understanding of a single service. I mean, obviously there are hundreds of services and even beyond that, I mean, there's sort of like hundreds of subservices, right? And like things to understand and then the interconnectivity between them. Um, so what's the suggestion there? Like, do you do you try to learn it all or do you just pick a few things that, that's gonna work best for you? Yeah, so I mean, I I think I would start at least in terms of consuming documentation. I always suggest people start with the stuff that's relevant to them right now or they're they're looking at, right? So Lambda or S3, I think S3 is the most applicable service probably that exists in cloud today. Um, But I would, I would consume the documentation. Now it's important to realize that there's multiple kinds of documentation uh, out there that exists for AWS at varying levels for each service, right? You kind of have your, your narrative documentation, which is the one that I think most people read where it kind of goes through and explains the features, the services, how to use them. You have the technical documentation, which you only read if you're really intending to implement something or low level API docs, things like that. Uh, I would consider the the Bodo docs, the uh, AWS SDK for Node.js, things like that. Uh, and then you have the blog posts, the examples, the explainers, the how-tos. Um, you have to... I think read and synthesize all three of those sources to be able to construct in your head a cohesive or nearing complete model of what that service can do for you. 
Um, and that's what I try to do uh, when I'm going out and reading the service doc, reading the docs for a particular service. And that's an extremely time-consuming process, right? Even just finding all of that documentation can take a couple <laughs> hours to really build all of that out. Um, and I, I guess my suggestion to folks is like, you don't have to do that for every service. Do right. it for the ones that you use regularly. Do it for the one that might uh, might make the difference in your particular product. So for instance, if you're doing machine learning, I would go do that for SageMaker to understand if it meets my use case. And if it doesn't necessarily meet my entire use case, what problems am I going to run into or limits am I going to run into and understanding those uh, mm -hmm. makes it easier to build to your use case. So I guess ultimately, look, nobody has the time to read all of those docs. I get that. Uh, but I think the investment upfront is absolutely worth it for those core services. And you'll just have an easier time later on uh, if you're willing to do that small upfront investment. Right. Now, and one of the things about investing time in anything outside of actually programming or doing something that is maybe making money for the company you're working for, um, obviously, is this learning time is a huge investment, right? So, yep. um, so digging into some of these document, you know, the docs and, and, and going through and like, like you said, three sets of docs, probably for every service that's out there, plus other like non uh, you know specific AWS uh, affiliated stuff where other people are writing examples and things like that open source libraries um, you know what effect does this extra learning have on uh, not only developer productivity but maybe on like team productivity in general so I think it's compounding I think the more folks that you have spread across various services, you quickly establish subject matter experts, right? SMEs. Um, even inside of Trek 10, for instance, we have something we call the, the SME matrix, where um, we all kind of go through and individually rank our familiarity and skill level with particular services or technology. Um, and ours is on a scale of um, have no idea to have multiple production systems I've built that okay. are using yep. that service. Right. Um, like three in the middle is I've I've read all of the documentation. I understand it. I've experimented with it. Um, finding people that are fives in stuff that's outside of uh, Trek 10's core competency. Right. You could expect if you were to put um, a five on Macy or something crazy like that, <laughs> we, we would be going to that person right now and saying, OK, tell me everything, you know. Right. And, and having those people on your team and kind of distributing knowledge of more niche services across your team is super valuable. Um, being able to go to somebody and say, tell me about API Gateway WebSockets because I want to build a real time product. Um, having that person that's invested that time that's actually built something is invaluable. The, the 30 hours, the 40 hours that they spent reading documentation or prototyping something, I, I think pays back, you know, exponential dividends over the course of history. Right. Um, it just, it takes time to, to, to make back that investment, which I understand. Yeah. And I think this idea of SMEs is a really, really interesting concept when you look at an ecosystem like uh, AWS. So you have mentioned in the past this idea of the T-shaped engineer, right? Um, yep. And I'd love for you to explain that because I think that that might take the pressure off of some people um, thinking they need to learn everything as deeply as mm. possible. Yeah. So so the concept of a, of a, of a T-shaped engineer is really 
go wide on many topics, right? Uh, if you're coming into the AWS ecosystem, you know, you're not going to know a ton right off the bat, but it's valuable to go wide on a lot of topics and gain a, a wide breadth of topical knowledge and understanding um, what Lambda is and does and maybe how to deploy a Lambda function, SAM, serverless framework, things like that. Um, understanding this is how they work. This is what they do. Mm. Understanding EC2, understanding S3, Dynamo, RDS, all of this stuff. Understand at a, 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 a fairly minimal level just what they do, how to use them. But then that's that's the top of your T. And then you have the the vertical where that's that's your specialty. That's the thing you're really good at. The thing that you know the limits of Dynamo DB on demand capacity uh, will work for a zero to X amount of spike, right? Mm -hmm. Zero to 12,000 will just work. If you go above that in the span of 60 seconds, you might have some, some throttling or something like that, right? Most people don't know that, but having those people that do know that um, for their prospective services and you as an engineer makes you invaluable in that particular vertical. Um, and then having that topical knowledge is really just helps you understand what questions you need to be asking of people as you start investigating other areas. Right. And that idea of going really deep on specific things, I, I think this is where sort of the next point you brought up in the blog post was, is that understanding a service's use case versus, you know, sort of just the uh, un the service itself um, or the baseline, like you said, that, you know, those, those right questions to ask versus exactly how they work. Um, you know, that's another thing that, that you sort of pointed out is that for every service out there, there are, you know, probably a ton of different use cases. Um, and if you just learn one service, then everything starts looking like a nail. Right. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that's part of that is the consequence of AWS being very good at building service primitives. Mm. Um, right. You have SNS, SQS, Kinesis. DynamoDB streams, event bridge. I can make them all do very similar things. Right. Um, the question then becomes, what are the constraints of my business systems or my business logic? Um, and that's how I start picking the service that actually fits the best, right? Does my event need to go to multiple people? Well, okay, maybe that's SNS. Um, SQS probably won't work anymore because that's pretty much a one-to-one. -one. Uh, does my event or a thing that I'm publishing um, need ordering guarantees? Well, if I need ordering guarantees, I'm pretty much stuck on Kinesis or something like right. that. Um, but those those are the questions that going and asking the subject matter experts or things like that, like. I wouldn't expect somebody to know that if I had strict ordering guarantees that Kinesis is pretty much my only option, unless I need SQS FIFO, which is now an option, right? <laughs> that wasn't an option until very recently because it didn't have a native integration with Lambda. Right. That of course evolved, but. Well, but speaking of, um, speaking of evolving, right? Things that change over time. I mean, that's one of the things that's nice uh, about using any of these services that even if there are limits in place, even if there are, uh, you know, uh, other type of limitations that prevent you from using it for certain use cases, eventually over time, it seems like these products just keep getting better and new features are added. And next thing you know, you can use it, um, you know, for some other use case. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's, I think, part of the beauty of building on the cloud. There's very few other instances or circumstances I can think of 
where building building some piece of technology and letting it sit for a year or two means it gets better and cheaper right. without you know touching it. And we've had we've legitimately had a tracked systems that we've built where we kind of just let it sit. Uh, we we had built it. We might do some occasional um, dependency level package um, uh, package management, sure. you know, addressing CVEs or things like that. But largely, we just left the architecture untouched, and we would go and look at metrics. And over time, the metrics just got better. Like it got more performant. It got cheaper over time, and that's that's kind of weird. <laughs> uh, but that's one of the benefits of building. I would say not just serverless, but cloud native in general. Yeah. Um, you know, Macy just got cheaper um, by some crazy number. Things like that, right? If you're already using these technologies, um, they tend to get cheaper. In, in most circumstances. So the other thing I think that's interesting, especially we put this in the context of things I wish I knew, um, you know, these service limits exist and there's been a very, I don't want to say, uh, I, I guess a dogma in a sense uh, around this idea, oh, well, serverless is infinitely scalable. And if mm -hmm. I use this service and I use that service, then I can just scale up whatever. But there are, you know, soft concurrency limits for, for Lambda. There's, you know, Kinesis shard limits, there's throughput limits mm -hmm. for, you know, uh, DynamoDB and these other things. So there are a lot of limits in place. And I guess uh, my frustration around that, around this is you really do need to go deep on some of these mm -hmm. topics in order to understand, you know, yep. what those limitations are. And then it really hurts when you hit those limitations in production and you're like, yes. I didn't even know this existed. I mean, that might be on you, but... Is that something the cloud maybe needs to do a better job of? I mean, not just Amazon in, in, or AWS in, in particular, but other clouds, do they need to do a better job at managing these service limits for us? I think it's fair to say that those limits are not put there maliciously. They're put there to stop people from doing silly things and protect, I think, the broader ecosystem in the cloud, right? Um, there's still kind of, there can still be a noisy neighbor. Like if somebody would accidentally infinitely call a Lambda function that recursively called itself, right. you know, I feel like letting someone eat up the entire capacity of Lambda in a particular region because we didn't have those established limits would be a scary thought that somebody could do that either intentionally or, or um, on accident. But you have to pick some arbitrary number Right, um, and I think the cloud, many of the providers could do a better job at providing guide rails while still managing where those guide rails are. And I think in a lot of cases they do do a pretty good job at that with certain services. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm of course speaking from the Amazon perspective, sure. the AWS perspective. I can't speak too credibly to most of the other clouds. Uh, once again, I just, I kind of know what the other clouds do, but I know Amazon really well. Uh, <laughs> yeah. um, but I think it's it's absolutely fair to say that in the cloud providers could be doing more there. And I think that's just, we're all learning this stuff as we go. Right. We're like learning those limits as we go, sort of. Yeah, and I would argue that the cloud providers are learning where that number is, right? How right. The, the default limits for Lambda have been lifted, I think, at least once, maybe twice. Right. And, and, and default limits change as, as we're discovering, okay, it's most valid use cases probably can get up to this amount. Um, and they do good jobs at at least providing 
um, the support that you need if your cases are scaling beyond the, those defaults. They don't do a terribly proactive job in my experience of um, some of that, but they do a very good job in most cases. Right. Well, one of the things I, I like what you said there is that they didn't put those in place maliciously. Um, and one of those reasons um, that it, that they're there, I think is to protect against costs, right? And like yeah. out of control costs. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, this denial of, of wallet thing that, you know, that this sort of become a, uh, a standard saying, I guess, in the serverless uh uh, in the serverless community, I think is very, very real, right? And that's actually the third the third thing you said you wish you knew is that cost is just really, really hard to understand and not only just understand what certain things cost, but that dynamic flexibility, like what that has, uh, you know, what effect that has on um, the procurement departments and, and the business, uh, you know, decision makers that have to understand these costs. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think there's... There's a couple points to that, and it's it's really hard to do. Like people like to do apples to apples comparison. Well, I can buy this particular server or some um, like similar server that could run Lambda functions like this or whatever. Put it in my data center, and it's gonna my capital expenditure is gonna be like X, mm -hmm. right? Versus Y for the cloud, and X is less than Y, therefore cloud dumb, right? <laughs> That's so. I have yet to see an actual good calculation because it's so darn hard to to quantify not just the the server expense. Sure, that's easy. Yep. Compare it like apples to apples, you can get close, sure. But the 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 power, the electricity, the the real estate, the uh you can kind of get put numbers on that. Mm -hmm. Sure. You can get close. But then you say, okay, so what's the opportunity cost of someone having worked on building out that server or putting stuff on that server or patching that server versus what features could they have built if they weren't working on that, right? right? What's the opportunity business cost there? Mm -hmm. I have no idea, <laughs> right? So I wish we could put numbers on that. And then I would, I would imagine I don't have any really anecdotal evidence, yeah. uh, let alone empirical evidence that shows that you know, serverless is of course always cheaper, right? And I and I think I think you've got this thing too, where what I really like about the fine grained billing aspect of serverless or just of the cloud in general. I mean, even if you're just using EC2 instances, um, you sure. you know with a pretty good certainty if you measure you know the number of users that you know that twenty of these servers can support, or how many invocations we have on a given uh, given month or given week, and the number of users that supports being able to take those numbers and break them down and then being able to see, okay, every time a user you know, is uh, in our system and they do X, it costs this much money. And knowing that, um, even though that may be variable, I think is really handy to know because that's some of the stuff you would never know if you were either on-prem or even in some cases just using virtual machines. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think it's absolutely a point. I've, I've had actually uh, over the past couple of weeks, some really interesting conversations with people that are trying to get essentially to this idea of like zero unallocated costs mm. uh, within their, their bill. They know uh, for every penny that passes through their, their billing framework, uh, try to understand which tenant or which feature that, that is allocated to yeah. which is very cool and it's it's i think you know that's a hard problem to solve just look at aws billing or, or any cloud billing like that's a hard problem to solve um 
So that's, <laughs> yeah. I, I will say one of the one of the most interesting things I have seen, I think my record right now for crazy Lambda spend, which I wish we would have had some of those soft concurrency limits. We had uh, raised them for other testing in an account. Mm-hmm. But I think the highest I've seen was like $12,000 in like an hour. Oh, jeez. Because uh, of like an infinite recursion thing. Yeah. And we're like, whoops. <laughs> right? Um, now, to cloud providers' credit, most of them are pretty good about being like, right. "Yeah, we know you made yeah, a mistake." Yeah, yeah, like no sane person would do that. We're sorry. Here's here's some money back, right? right? right. <laughs> well, and that's actually it would be would be nice for the you know for some of those other things, those out of control cost things, where even if the limits are raised, that you know there'd be something that would detect that would be like, "Well, hang on, this probably isn't right," um, you know. But uh, <laughs> but yeah. So I mean, then the other thing about this though is. Um, you know, we're talking about costs, right? Which is funny because if you if you think about most developers, um, they're writing code and they're uploading it to a server or you know checking it into their uh, into their code repository, and then somebody else takes care of it. How much it costs to run that code is generally not a huge um, uh, is it, not the the main focus for a developer. But you shift to serverless, and then all of a sudden, it's like the choice between using Kinesis and using uh, SQS or SNS, whatever. There's a big cost difference depending on what that scale is, right? If you said, yeah. "Hey, uh, you know, your boss comes to you and they say we need to make sure we do detection in our S3 data to get rid of all of our credit cards or any PII in there," and you're like, "Oh, great! I'll just flip on Macy." Two hundred thousand dollars <laughs> later, right? You're like, oh, wait a minute. We maybe we could have done this a better way. So, how how much should developers be thinking about cost now that they have so much control over the services that they use? I I think developers should be cost aware. I, I it's it's interesting. There's kind of been like this fin DevOps or whatever you want to call it, and I'm not sure that's necessarily the answer. <laughs> Um, I think developers should absolutely be cost aware and make, and at the very least, be able to to make cost effective decisions. Mm-hmm. Now that that gets hard at scale, right? Like Kinesis at a at a very low scale, Kinesis is ex- exponentially more expensive, right? Yep. It's like a per shard thing where if I'm sending one SQS message per month right. or using one <laughs> Kinesis shard per month, that's it's not comparable. Right. Now, if I'm sending thousands of messages per second, Kinesis is probably a much more interesting option because there's you know additional features and functionality that also come out of that. So um, I I don't want to say that you know developers' core job should be cost optimization or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I think in any sufficiently large organization, you approach the point where having those um, subject matter experts or architecture experts or even dare I say, cost optimization experts or <laughs> cloud economists. Uh, hey, there you go. A few of those, but I'd argue some of those. Uh, I, I think they're they are positioned to be able to help developers understand the the cost impact of decisions they're making in their architecture. Right. I wouldn't pin that all on the developers. I think that's unfair. But I think sufficiently large organizations should have those people in place. So what about organizations though that maybe aren't that large? I mean, even, you know, small, I mean, I've worked in very small startups before where it's like, 
I mean, after I finish building the CICD pipeline and, you know, writing some new facial recognition thing, I go and I empty the trash. Like I've been at that level of, um, of uh, you know, diverse, <laughs> diversity of job, uh, of, uh, job tasks. But the, but for, you know, maybe mid-sized companies that, that do have a little bit of a separation, especially a separation between the developers and the technical people um, and then some of those business decision makers. Um, is there a is there a good way or an effective way that you know of that that developers can communicate costs sort of up that up that chain to those business leaders? I think you can at least take some of those usage usage costs and say at this order of magnitude, this is what this will cost, right? And you can kind of put some of those rough numbers together, um, and and that's especially in this granular world of 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 serverless and many of these managed services, you can at least get an order of magnitude and you can kind of get close with the numbers. Mm-hmm. You can say, you know, if one user is using this, this is what it costs us. If 10,000 users or whatever that is. Yeah. Um, but I, I would say what, and this is kind of like this, a little bit like the scream test, but it's, it's also my, my general suggestion for, should you use DynamoDB on demand capacity or reserve capacity is, you know, just, just keep using a thing until like it hurts. <laughs> and this is, this is not great advice. Like in the enterprise ecosystem necessarily, because right, right. someone's going to come to you and be like, why are we spending $10 million on S3? And you're like, well, because we just put everything in normal storage and we're not glaciering or life cycling anything. Right. But, you know, you, you have a pretty good idea of what hurts your wallets. Um, and if you go look and say, why is my Dynamo DB cost 10 times what everything else is? Well, we could probably go make a more cost-effective decision at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the, the reason that I like the, just pay for this thing until it hurts is it's a moving target. And it also depends on your company, yeah. right? For a startup spending a thousand dollars on Dynamo DB might hurt. Um, and we can go figure out how we can solve that problem for an enterprise spending a hundred thousand dollars on Dynamo DB might be perfectly fine, right? Um, and and the, the nice part about most cloud native architectures um, is it does give developers the knobs and turns and buttons to, for the most part, pivot their architectures um, or adjust their architectures to, to cost optimize when they're ready to. Um, you don't have to prematurely optimize in most cases. Right. Yeah, good point. Um, all right, so there were a few other things you mentioned in this article too. So you, those were sort of the three big ones. Um, but you had a couple other ones you mentioned in here, uh, just things like good AWS account hygiene. What's that about? Yeah, so one of the most frequent things that I'd say we as a, a consulting partner end up doing when we come into new engagements is let's do a quick audit of what our AWS accounts um, um landscape looks like are, are we all in one aws account or do we have multiple accounts for each and you know do we have each environment in its own account does each product have its own suite of accounts things like that and i would say there's different levels of maturity that organizations can pass through there's different tools out there um org um organization formation is a pretty cool new one um there's of course control tower from from aws themselves who have recognized that this is a struggle um but I would say investing in your core AWS account um, landscape is probably one of the most core things that you can do to set yourself up for success later. Uh, and that's where I really, uh, it's, it's just important. 
it's so hard to, to, to reverse bad decisions. Right. There. Yeah. Especially once you have things in production, start moving things yeah, around yeah. and repointing things. It's, it's your best, I'd say it's your best utility for that security blast radius right. that you have. Right. Good point. Um, all right. So you have another one in here, follow new products and services. I think that's pretty straightforward. Um, proof of concept early and often. That's another, uh, I think, interesting thing. It's just this idea of staying up to date with new products and, and trying something new and seeing if that yep. can help. Um, also, this idea of preparing for failure in regional outages, that's an entire podcast in and of itself. Um, but the, the one that, another one that I thought was really good was this idea of having a plan to turn people into cloud natives. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's, I think I'm biased towards that because that's very much my, my day job um, is helping people accomplish that. Um, but it's, it's very difficult to succeed when you are adopting AWS if you have, um, as Forrest likes to put it, one of those cutely named like centralized cloud teams, like the Cumulonimbus team right. or something like that. <laughs> uh, if you're trying to 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 disseminate knowledge, um, or I, should, I should not say disseminate knowledge. I should say disseminate uh, architectural decisions and authority from a central point, mm -hmm. it's very, very hard because you haven't won the, the, the respect of the people that are not on that team to actually adopt and follow those practices. Right. They're going to say, I'm familiar with EC2 and maybe I am familiar with, you know, um, Ansible or other of those solutions like that from my data center. They work just fine in EC2. Mm -hmm. You can take your SAM template and just go shove it in an S3 bucket. Like, I don't care. Yeah. Um, I'm going to use the things that I know work. Um, and I think you really have to invest and train in folks that are helping you on your cloud journey. So you can't just do that with a, a centralized team um, without having that uh, hard won knowledge, like pushed across your entire team. It's just very difficult to succeed. Right. Yeah. I think you get, you need to get buy-in from people and it's just, it's easy for people to get comfortable. Um, and you're right. If my chef scripts and ops works and all those other things working <laughs> just fine, why am I, why am I going to change over to something else? So I, I totally agree with that one. Hey everyone, I just wanted to take a quick minute to thank our sponsor, Amazon Web Services. If you love serverless as much as I do, then you have to register for the first ever completely free AWS serverless first function. These are a set of two free of charge virtual events that offer the latest education and thought leadership material about serverless approaches on AWS. The first event will focus on serverless for your organization and that's on May 21st. The second will be about serverless for your application happening on Thursday, May 28th. The event agenda includes sessions with AWS leaders like the VP of Serverless, David Richardson, VP of Cloud Architecture Strategy, Adrian Cockcroft, customer speakers like WorkGrid Software's Head of Cloud Engineering, Jillian McCann, and an introduction by the Amazon CTO, Dr. Werner Vogels. These are going to be incredibly educational events for anyone building serverless applications or thinking about it. You can register using the link in the show notes for the episode, or you can search the web for AWS Serverless First Function. But that actually is another, I think, is another mindset that is very damaging for people that are trying to do these cloud journeys. And those are the people who think this runs this way in my data center. And basically, Amazon or Google or Microsoft or whatever, one of these cloud, these public cloud providers, 
they're just a big data center. And so I'm just going to take my stuff. I'm going to lift it and we're going to shift it into the cloud and everything's going to be perfect. You think that is a terrible idea. Yeah. So I would say in, in my short tenure, uh, in doing some of these lift and shift things, uh, you know, about half a decade or so at this point in doing some of those practices or kind of being called in after that was attempted. Um, it, it's never a short-term strategy. It always ends up being a long, painful slog of, you know, okay, can we make this very specially designed server work in EC2? Oh no, it turns out they don't have the correct processors to run this optimized code that we have. Right. Like, uh, it's, and you know, that's a very edge case example, but my goodness, it's just, it never works. Um, you can do it short term and spend a ridiculous amount of money doing so and still not have what I would argue is as good of a solution as if you would take a little bit more time, mm -hmm. a little bit more money upfront and have a better solution long-term. And you know, that's, you can have it, you know, fast, you can have it cheap and you can have it good, but right. do, right? right. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's one of those things too with lift and shift where, I mean, I don't think you have to get everybody to embrace microservices, right? You can build a lot of distributed monoliths if you know, if you need to do that. I mean, just switching over to something like RDS versus trying to run your own database cluster or any of those things, just starting to use more cloud-native serv uh, services, I think is a huge step in the right direction, um, yeah. even if you're still running your application on EC2 instances. But um, the, the one last thing I wanted to mention on that article, um, and you, you brought it up a little bit earlier, and I, I thought this was really good advice is especially for someone like me, I do a podcast, I write a newsletter, I, I try to keep my finger on the pulse of serverless. Um, yep. That includes Cloudflare and AWS and Microsoft Azure and GCP and Fastly and um, you know Kubernetes and Kubeless or Kubeless or whatever, however you pronounce it. There's just so many, who knows? There's just so <laughs> many uh, open fast, right? There's just so many uh, cloud providers that are doing this now. Um, uh, Adobe uh, IO Runtime. I mean, like, there's just so many of these that are doing this now and trying to keep up with these um, just from an information dissemination standpoint is really mm -hmm. tough. I know nothing, nothing about some of the services in these other clouds other than sure. just a, a tiny bit of it. So if you ask me, hey, you know, you, you, you're reporting on all this stuff on GCP and on, on Azure. Can you show me how to set this up? No, not I, I can't. I don't even know the first thing about it. Um, and I think that is good advice for people that are trying to build something, you can't learn AWS completely. So don't try to learn four different public cloud providers either. No, I mean, uh, in the very early days of, of Trek 10, both uh, personally and then also as a company, we were asked uh, to, to do work on uh, Azure, I believe, and, and we attempted it and it, it worked, right? <laughs> like what we built worked. And then we pretty quickly decided AWS is already huge. Um, the market share is plenty. And I think that's true for most of the other providers as yep. well. You could probably make a living consulting on GCP or consulting on Azure. Um, but doing a good job in delivering um, services or even your own product 
on all three of the cloud providers, um, the main ones, I should say, there's tons more out there, sure. Cloudflare, all of those. Um, like that's, that's extremely difficult. Um, and I think you just have to optimize for the minimal time and brain capacity you have. Mm -hmm. Pick one and commit. And if you're wrong, okay, just pick another one and commit. Like, I'm sorry <laughs> you wasted the time, but um, I, I, even today, if you were to tell me, you know, Jared, pick one, it can't be AWS. That's fine. I would just go pick one and that's, that's where I'd go. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't think I would try to distribute around too many of them right now. You just, you can't do a, what I would consider a good job right. by spreading yourself so thin. Yeah. And I think you, I think you've got all of these major cloud providers um, and it doesn't, it doesn't matter if it's Tencent or Alibaba or, sure. um, you yeah. know, any of the, the big US ones. Um, there is just there's just a growing ecosystem around every single one of yep. these. So so yeah, so AWS, great if you like it. I mean, it's got a lot of stuff. I love AWS because there's so much stuff there. But Azure is pretty cool, right? And they've been doing a lot yep. of stuff around that. And and uh, you know, GCP has Cloud Run, which is a very cool way to do serverless, uh, you know, serverless containers. So um, there, yeah. So I totally agree with that. It's just you know, but I think if somebody is looking at this overwhelming number of clouds, that's just really good advice. Do not try to learn them all. Pick one, hmm. you know, go deep on a few services and learn that. You'll never build anything. You'll spend right. all of your time learning, right? right? So, which is important, but at some point, <laughs> at some point, you're going to have to write some code. Um, yeah. All right. So, I want to move on to another article that you wrote um, that was about the guiding principles for building uh, a SaaS, and I thought this just tied in nicely to this uh, uh, to this other article that you wrote uh, recently. And and one thing reading this article too is I don't think this is just about building SaaS. This is about building any application in the cloud. Um, I know sure. Trek10 just recently got your SaaS competency um, with with AWS which is awesome, by the way. And by the way, I love these new um, Lambda Ready programs and some of these things where it's just mm -hmm. basically like certifying providers and consultants and uh, partners that know that know what they're doing and kind of have that sign off from AWS. I think that's super important that um, yeah. uh, that those exist. But so so back to this um, uh, to this article, though, uh, this was, you know, uh, I guess there were about three principles. Or what are the three guiding principles? Um, so I want to go through these because I, I think this is super important for any company building an application. Um, obviously, I think it's very much so biased here towards building an application cloud native and more so serverless cloud native, uh, which is, I mean, again, this is the advice that I would give as well. Um, so let's talk about these because this first one was really interesting. Build as if you may sell at any time. What did you mean by that? So I think that I've, so I've actually experienced a, a couple uh, folks have come to us and said, uh, hey, we're, we're spinning off of this product where we're selling the company, we're selling this branch. Uh, it is so tightly bound to all of our other infrastructure mm. and and practice that spinning this off is like its own entire effort um, that is non-trivial when it comes to actually needing to to sell that that product or branch or whatever. Um, so I think the guiding principle there ultimately is consider your your dependencies uh, back to the, the company and things like that. Um, so if I'm building a new product line or a new branch of the company, I'm giving them their own AWS accounts, their own um, segment of an organization where, you know, 
I can hand off the keys fairly easily, mm-hmm. right? Um, even in terms of financials, uh, I would run, if I could, through their own bank account or something like that. So auditing the books, right? Like it's it's good financial hygiene to be able to audit those books kind of independently for that product and then come back to your, your mainline business as well. And you have a better understanding of what my cost allocations are. Um, being able to do the hand off the keys, say, here you go. Um, uh, here's the keys to your brand new car or product or whatever it is. Um, that's ultimately where I'm trying to get is auditability and understanding and um, segmentation away from anything else in your company. Try not to entangle too many things. Right. That's really where the guidance there comes from. And the reason that I think that's important, even if you never plan on selling that thing, is there's security benefits and and you get your own internal audit benefits and you get um, so many compounding benefits that I think it's worth that, what I would consider small upfront investment if done correctly at the beginning. Right. Yeah. And then the other thing that I think this ties into, and and you mentioned in the article, um, is also the idea of sort of setting up the developer. I don't know if we'd call it the developer experience or just sort of the developer, uh, I guess, interface into this piece of the cloud. And you quoted Ben Kehoe uh, in the article when he said, uh, move your development environment towards the cloud. Do not try to move the cloud down to your dev environment. And and this yep. is me interpreting this, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I see this as basically saying, like, don't build some sort of overly complex local development system that is going to be really hard to migrate if somebody else takes over. Utilize as many tools as you can um, to, again, move that development experience more towards the cloud. Yeah, right. And I mean, like, if you can sufficiently mock AWS on one machine, you should be starting your own company. <laughs> um, but but uh, I, I would say you can you can mock well enough locally to do some very fast unit tests or things like that. But you cannot really sufficiently mock or simulate the cloud locally enough. Um, local in such a way that I would consider it, even if you were to run end-to-end tests or something like that locally, I would never consider that sufficient as compared to doing it in the cloud. There's so many things that are interesting about your application running in the cloud, whether it's network or even IAM permissions or things like that. There's so much complexity up there that I would much prefer my developers are working kind of with those resources natively um, for their end-to-end or integration tests and things like that, all of that, that should just all be happening up there. Um, now, of course, it can be painful if you're using um, SAM or things like that and you're like, type a line of code, try to push it, type a line of code, build, push. I get that. That's painful. And that's where I think, uh, you know, fast local unit tests are acceptable. That's fine. I'm never going to ask to take that away from a developer. Right. Um, but giving developers their own AWS accounts or their own kind of small team environment, uh, ephemeral AWS accounts, mm. there's some cool tooling out there that's kind of enabling that. That stuff's really cool. And that's where I would invest company and some engineering time into providing that better engineering experience uh, for the rest of my teams. Right. So then the other thing that is, uh, I guess, ties to this idea of being able to sell at any time um, is what you what you you title it as build as if you may open source at any time. And I can tell you, I, I write a lot of open source projects 
Um, and it's mm -hmm. a bit scary at first when you write an open source project and you're writing documentation and you're letting people look at your code. Um, because I've worked for a lot of organizations where um, uh, you would not want to pull back that curtain and see what was behind there. Lots of duct tape, lots of popsicle sticks, um, hamsters and wheels, you know, keeping things running. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that is true of a lot of companies. And I think the way you get there is because technical debt builds up over time, right? You just, you know, you're moving fast, like, oh, we have a point, a, a, a proof of concept. Next thing you know, it's productized and we're missing some things there. Um, but this is, a, I think, a really, really good point is, you know, you should build your company in a way that says, look, we could be transparent tomorrow if we needed to be. Sure, yeah. And I mean, like, I, a lot of companies are, are building towards, I'd say, you know, short-term right right now value versus long-term stability. Right. And that I get that. It makes a lot of sense, especially financially in, in certain cases, uh, if I need something right now um, versus, you know, what's this going to look like in six months when we circle back to it. But ultimately, building is if you're going to open source at any time, I, I think forces you to at least think, if somebody was looking over my shoulder mm -hmm. right now, Right. If I was building something and say, if Jeremy's looking over my shoulder right now, am I really gonna put like my GitHub magic key or whatever <laughs> into this line of like code and just hard code it and like deploy it and be like, I'll fix that later. <laughs> like I feel like Jeremy's gonna be back there and be like, Really, man? Like I, I respected you and now no, like there's nothing. Um, so I think it helps you at least it helps you justify the few extra minutes or in some cases hours mm -hmm. or days to make the right technical decision. And I get tech, that's a thing. Look, go look at open source code. There's tons of stuff out there that's like, yeah, to do like actually like make this work appropriately right. or, or optimize this thing. Like that's fine. Nobody's going to judge you. We all get it. People write software and they understand software is hard. Um, but they are going to judge you pretty hard if you make security, like poor security decisions or poor architectural decisions where it just doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. And I think having that, that fictitious open source, you know, gazer over your shoulder, it just helps you make those decisions and, and kind of think to yourself. Right. And it's beyond just code, though. I mean, I like to litter my open source stuff with to-dos because I know if I don't put it in there, I won't go back to it. And I also feel like if you put some to-dos in an open source project, um, somebody that has, excuse me, that has a little bit of extra time might come through and be like, oh, hey, I can do a right. PR for it. Great. Um, but internally in your own company, I mean, I think I still think that's a good practice. I mean, if you say, look, this thing doesn't check the string the right way or it doesn't it needs more parsing or more validation. Great. Then just put a to-do in there and say that. But mm -hmm. I think what Another thing that almost every company I work with and every company I sort of dealt with that isn't a open source company that's that's publishing closed source software, uh, they are terrible when it comes to documentation. Yep. And I, and I would argue, I mean, even most most companies that aren't just all internal or anything like many open source projects have terrible documentation true, and true. you just never heard of them because they have terrible documentation. Nobody knows what they do. Um, can you tell a theme here? Documentation. <laughs> it's, it's very important. Uh, so I think that when you're building, you know, uh, most successful open source projects, if you go look, have, they're, they're very good, at least technical documentation. You can go and understand um, how the product works in the technical documentation. 
Um, and then also they usually have decent um, narrative documentation. You can understand what the product does, how you can leverage the product, how it solves your use cases, things like that. Mm -hmm. And I think having some of those internally as well can help with onboarding a new employee right. faster. They can help with, you know, when your a client comes along and says, hey, can you explain more to me about feature X? How does this feature work? Right. If you can hand over some decent documentation around that particular feature, even if, you know, it's not the technical documentation, but it's the narrative docs and saying, here's how this thing works. Here's how it's designed internally a little bit, you know, give them a little peek behind peek, peek behind the sheet. Um that's fine. And, and customers will value that your, your employees will value that people that are trying to build that contextual awareness of your product and how it works. They're going to, they're going to value that documentation. And I think building as if you may open source at any time is, you know, there's, there's the embarrassment aspect of the, the, the code decisions that might not be great, yep. but you wouldn't want to open source, you know, with no explanation. And I think those, that documentation is, part of your explanation. Right. Yeah. And I mean, one of the things I like to, uh, and, and I don't think I'm the only one who does this, but if I make a decision, if I say, okay, I'm going to use SQS versus Kinesis or something mm -hmm. like that, um, you make that decision. And then, you know, six months later, you go back and you're like, why did I, why did I choose SQS again? Or why, you know, what was the one? Was? I mean, I think you do that a lot. And so oftentimes I try to put in just justifications of why I made a certain decision. I do this a lot too. Like, I mean, I know recursive functions generally are pretty bad if they go very deep and they, you know, they can cause all these kind of overflows and whatever. But um, Stack Overflow, where the you know where the site got its name from. But the um, but the thing that I that I will do sometimes is sometimes if it doesn't go that deep, and I know there's a limitation to it, I'll write a recursive function because it's faster, it's more compact, um, it's easier to probably reason about than especially if you have to write out some long interpretive uh, or imperative version of it. Um, so yep. so justifying that though and putting it out saying I did this this way because and I didn't do it this way because I think those notes can be really helpful as well. Yeah. And I mean, I think even, you know, kind of going back to this case of the cloud improves around you or things improve around, improve around you, like even going back in and saying, yeah, this technical decision was made before this other thing existed is completely valid to do, right? Like someone might be like, why in the world would you have used Kinesis here when you can totally have used like SQS FIFO? And you'd be like, I made this decision two years ago. Like I can't be held liable for improvements made to the cloud exactly. while I wasn't doing this. Like, yeah, dates in your code. I mean, that's the other thing. I always date comments uh, in my yeah. code because it's just, it's it's helpful to have those um, when you do that. Um, this other concept or this idea um, where people think, uh, or I've been, I've heard it a lot for a lot of companies where they're like, well, the code is the documentation, right? That oftentimes, mm -hmm. um, and we're not talking about, you know, well-commented code that can use a doc generator, which we right. can talk about in a second. Um, but the, the, the thing that I tend to see, especially when people write code, um, is they like to get cute. They find their own shortcuts, right? They find their own different ways to do it. Um, I was into functional programming for JavaScript for quite some time. Um, and then I realized, okay, the speed benefit of the interpreter probably doesn't matter. Um, it just looks more compact and it's much more confusing when I go back and look at it later. So it's like, even look at my old, my old stuff from like two years ago. I'm like, I, I have no idea what that even does. Um, mm -hmm. So... So speaking of that, do you think that the code itself is good enough documentation if it's well written or, um, you know, what are your thoughts on that? And what are your thoughts on like adding a doc generator? 
Yeah, so I think that the best written, most elegant code in the world cannot compare even remotely to well done, you know, natural language right. documentation when it comes to communicating the the intention and context of what was built, mm -hmm. right? How this thing works, why we built this thing. Um, sure, the code can explain what it does and like at a technical level how it does it, but it doesn't explain the the business reasons for some of that code and the business impact yeah. or even necessarily the other systems that might depend or how they depend on that. And of course you can get some of that in, I think doc generators can get part of the way. You can explain definitely the technical, the technical library API or the technical uh, documentation can be code gen um, or doc gen from a lot of those. Sure. I think, you know, uh, PyDoc strings and, 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 and JavaScript doc strings, like all, all that stuff, fantastic we need it it's it's important it does not replace the narrative documentation that helps people actually read for context and understanding mm -hmm. and i think even what what a lot of people underestimate is the value to the doc writer of having to sit down and write out those docs it's not easy um, because sometimes it's not easy i'd say it's not easy but also at you as the individual sitting down and writing that documentation might discover things about what you've just built or you're going to right. build that you're like, oh, wait, I missed something, right? Like, you know, it could even be like trivial things like, oh, you know what? We have like this input for color, but it's actually enumerated and you have to give us like certain kinds of colors. Right. Um, but that's not explained anywhere. So like that, or are we just going to let people pass in uh, hex code uh, for for colors? Or are we going to expect strings for colors? Things like that, where it's like you have to explain that, um, and also just general, you know, here's limits of the service or things like that. That's not always explained t terribly well in um, the technical documentation. Whereas, you know, narrative docs, as we all know from AWS, you have to go to limits page or something like that to really find where that is. <laughs> yeah, totally agree. Um, so, all right, last thing on this subject, because this is another thing that um, is painfully obvious with most companies you work with, um, is the fact that they don't write any tests, or if they do, they write very few tests. Yeah, so I mean, that's definitely true. And I, I, I think, you know, this is uh, open source gazer over the shoulder, but oh my goodness, you, you you have to have some tests in there. And this is just pure embarrassment aspect. And I think tests are another level of documentation that most people don't consider mm -hmm. uh, to be documentation. But I can tell you that at least me personally, probably the first way that I go and understand if I should use an open source project is to go look at the mm -hmm. test folder, like the test directory. Um, Cause it's gonna tell me a couple things. It's gonna tell me A, how well tested are they? How solid is this system? Um, but beyond that, uh, test test code and the tests themselves explain to me the the API of the system and how the library works in most cases. I can go look at that and say, okay, this is what the system is capable of. This is what they're testing for. This is how I interact with this library or this system. This is how they think I should be interacting with this library or system, things like that, right? And that's stuff that you can't get from any other form of documentation, mm -hmm. but also it's just like 
system stability is it's, it's so critical. Right, that. especially with uh, I mean, just regression testing and any changes they make to the code. And I think I yeah. just said this on the last the last episode was, um, you know, I see code where you, you change something and you're like, I have no idea if this will break everything or what because I don't know. Um, I, there's no way for me to thoroughly test it. So um, I think that's hugely important. And I mean, even just some level of testing. Um, even at a high level, even if you're not going deep on unit testing, even testing at a function level and more complex things happening under that. But uh, yeah. it is just such an important thing um, that, uh, uh, but I get it. It takes time, right? It's an investment. It's another thing you have to do that takes away from feature building. And, 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 and I do think that it's kind of interesting once you move more to this cloud native managed services uh, world, I, I would say that end to end testing is more valuable mm -hmm. than ever. Right. I can't unit test or I shouldn't really be unit testing. Does S3 work? Right. Like, I'm just going to, I think I can safely assume it probably works. Right. Um, and I'm not going to like unit test the, the core functionality of that. But what I can test is uh, if I call my API that's supposed to write an object to S3, and then can I call the other API endpoint that is supposed to? Um, mutate or map that object and give me some kind of response out of it. And if I can do that, if I can end-to-end -end test like a few different things through a few different endpoints, my goodness, I, I can get to like 80% code coverage with like probably 10 tests right. in a sufficiently large system. Um, and it takes you a day, two days, let's say a week, because you have to learn a whole new end-to-end -end testing yep. framework to get to a pretty high level of confidence that my system is at least working in the happy yeah. path. Um, and that's that's invaluable. So that's, you know, that's where I would start at least these days. Um, in fact, when I go to work on new client systems, if I don't know how they work um, and I don't have the docs and I don't have even uh, doc generator docs mm -hmm. or anything like that, the first thing I do is sit down and go, cool, I'm gonna write some end-to-end -end tests just so I understand how your API right. works um, or your system works. Then the side effect is I understand this thing and we have end-to-end -end tests so I can start changing stuff and at least know if I broke something big. Um, yeah, so I totally, totally agree with that. Uh, all right, so last thing, and this is the one I was really looking forward to getting to. Um, and I think this ties back in with the um, uh, the note you said earlier about you know just sort of building cloud-native people. Um, is this idea of just building with a cloud-native mindset, right? I mean, because this is the thing where you know, your opinions on lift and shift. I totally agree with that. Like, I think it's a bad idea. Might be a great, maybe onboard thing, but you know that stuff's going to get left that way. So if you start thinking about building things in the cloud and using those native services, um, and you actually had a, you actually had a, a, a quote in there, something like if cloud formation doesn't exist for it, then is it even available or something like that? Right. Yeah, if it's not supported in cloud formation, does it actually right, exist? Right, right. <laughs> Questionable. <laughs> um, but yeah, but you you uh, you tied into a bunch of other you know things, and and you've always had this really great um, I don't know it's sort of like your uh, serverless uh, credo or something like that, where it's um, you know if the platform has it, use it; if the market has it, buy it; if you can reconsider requirements, do it; um, if you have if you have to build it, then own it. Um, and I love that because I think that is such a uh, that it it just it, it takes what we're trying to do with serverless and just wraps it up into four quick sentences, which is great. Um, but like your thoughts on that overall, like what are your thoughts on this building with a cloud native mindset? 
I think it's it takes practice, right? It you're giving up a lot of fundamental control that I think people are used to having. Right? I can't walk into my data center, open a rack, and turn off or turn on a server or pull wires or things. That's that's a huge fundamental shift for a lot of folks. And as we're migrating to people now these days that have never even walked into you know a rack of servers, um, we're, we're we're having people that are coming out of college that you know AWS and going into EC2 and clicking launch instance is their concept of a a right. server. Um, I I think what we're starting to build towards in terms of the cloud native mindset is we we fundamentally can trust these larger providers to provide good mostly good experiences and be careful there mostly good experiences <laughs> around these cloud primitive services um and we have s3 which you know has kind of been referred to as um uh, one of the the seven or the seventh or eighth wonder of the world it was like this modern marvel right. right that thing holds so much data and performs so well and is so scalable like when it goes down the internet's just basically right. done um that's that's incredible that they have this service and we're, we're trusting it um as cloud natives we're trusting these providers i don't care if it's azure or gcp or anybody um to provide these primitives that we can build on top of and i think cloud natives look at those primitives and you have an implied level of trust and you're willing to build businesses and business value on top of them and i think that's it, it's control and and being able to trust somebody else with giving up that control so you can accelerate what you're willing and and looking to build um in terms of business value is more of a cloud native mindset than 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 anything else. And uh, I'll bring Forrest into this again because you brought him into this. Um, he's becoming very popular as a uh, side topic on, on, the, on this podcast. Um, but he, you know, you, you, I think, included one of his, uh, his cartoons um, about the regret index. Um, and this, yep. is, this it, it, that is brilliant because it perfectly captures exactly what it is. If I write something myself, for me to be mm -hmm. like, nah, I'm just going to get rid of it is so hard. If I just buy yeah. something, for me to switch from X to Z for some product that I bought, much, much easier. And it, it's no skin off my teeth to do that. But if I built it myself, I, I really, really want to hang on to it. And that is, I think, just a huge problem. Yeah, I mean, it's... It's, uh, we see organizations and, and I'm not, when I say we, I don't just mean track 10, I mean, universally, I think all of us have seen organizations that have built something that some platform does better, some product does better, some open source product does better. And pretty much everybody says, why in the world do you keep using that thing? And it's like the not built here syndrome, yeah. right? Um, interestingly, I think Netflix suffers from the not built here thing, but also they have this side effect of the stuff they build is also really right. good and like <laughs> other people all use it. So outlier, <laughs> but, um, it's, yeah, I, I, to take it to an individual level, right. If you're willing to, to build something or invest in a hobby or craft brew or something like mm -hmm. that, like you're not just going to throw that out if it's like not great, right? right? You're going to be like, well, I've made this thing. I'm, I'm going to drink it now. 
this is terrible, but you know, you, you take a sip, you're like, wow, that's bad. Hey, Jeremy, <laughs> you, you, you want to try this, this thing that I made? And like, you know, whereas if you go buy a six pack or whatever from the store and you take a drink, you're like, that's terrible. You're like, yeah, yeah right. Exactly. I'm not going to drink exactly. the rest. I'm going to go just get it. Out like, and, uh, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that, that just generalizes to, to building stuff as a company and forests, I think really brought that to light when he's like, you know, if I buy something off the shelf and it doesn't work out, my regret is like, well, I spent money on something that I could have spent money on something else. If I invest engineering resources and build my own thing that turns out to be not great or the wrong thing, I'm much more invested in saying, well, I've already made that decision. I don't want to look like an idiot to my company. I don't want to waste company resources. Uh, we're just doubling down, right? So we're going to make it even worse. We're going to keep on yeah. <laughs> working on it until this thing is even. Yeah. Um, well, so I think there's a there's a couple of key takeaways you had in here. I mean, one of the thing was just like this idea of cloud native mindset is uh, or building with that is you're giving you're giving your team that autonomy so they can build things on their own, right? That they just have. Um, uh, they, they have more flexibility, right? You're not trapped into some system. You can try new things. You can experiment. You can, you can use products that get better, um, around, you know, they get better. Like you said, like they just get better with time because somebody is upgrading those things and you don't have to do anything. Um, and then the greatest piece of that whole bit of using somebody else's stuff is you don't have to write documentation for it, right? Cause they've already <laughs> written the documentation. So anyways, Jared, Thank you so much for being here. Um, those articles are awesome. Uh, I will put those in the show notes because I, I do think you need to go check out not only those, but also everything else that you're working on. So if people do want to find out the other things you're working on, how do they get a hold of you? Yeah, I'd say uh, the best way is, uh, of course, Twitter, the, the universal complaint box. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so at short Jared on Twitter. Um, and then you can also uh, go to my website, uh, jaredshort.com, um, which just use this a notion page because I just, the market had it. I just used it. Uh, <laughs> there go. So uh, that, and then uh, you can always email me um, as well. We'll, I guess we'll, we can put that in the show notes, yep. I guess. Um, but yeah, thanks Jeremy. It's, it's been an absolute pleasure. Awesome. All right. Well, I will get all that information into the show notes. Thanks again. All right. Thanks. And that's this week's serverless chat. I want to give a huge thank you to Jared Short for being my guest this week and to our sponsor, Amazon Web Services. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 49. For more serverless chats, subscribe, check us out on YouTube, and make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can follow me on Twitter, at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you want to keep up to date on everything serverless, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining me, and I look forward to chatting with all of you again next week.